Back in 2005, there was an event that changed my life, changed the life of the community in which I lived, and that was Hurricane Katrina. And I remember as it blew in, we were on our way up to Birmingham, Alabama, where we had evacuated, and about two weeks later, we drove back in. I drove in first, and then Cindy a few days after that. And we saw the devastation that had taken place. A friend of mine who lived a little bit south of where we lived had a friend who had stayed during the storm. Foolish thing to do, but the day after the storm, the winds had had calmed down, the water was still up. He was out in a boat going through the higher water in an area uh, called Belchase. And as he was going through that area, he went down a street and on this boat, he could lift his hand up and touch the bottom of the street light as he continued down the road. Houses were inundated with that water. And houses and homes were destroyed. <clears throat> Millions of people came down to help the community recover The estimates are that within the first several months, six months or so, that over a million and a half people came down in order to volunteer in southern Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama and then later um, over into Texas with later hurricane that summer, Hurricane Rita. And one of the things that you would see that was really interesting is these volunteers came in The teams, sometimes teams of 10, 12 people would go into a house that had been devastated, had been destroyed by the floodwaters. And they would begin the work of preparing it to be rebuilt. When you walked into those homes, it was rancid. The mold had grown up onto the walls and there was one cardinal rule. Don't open the refrigerator. Just the the smells and the devastation was overwhelming. I can remember being with many of the families and we'd begin the process of gutting the home and first thing would be you would take everything they owned that had been in the water and take it out to the side of the street. Piles as high as eight, nine, ten feet high along the street with, with their belongings, and then eventually the carpets, and then eventually the drywall, and everything that was within the house was carried out. In the early days, we would put tarps on the roof where there had been damage and there were holes in the roof where either the storm had just blown plywood away or debris had fallen onto the roof and devastated it and destroyed it. Sometimes there were walls that were broken, windows. But there was something that would begin to happen. As you were carrying all this stuff out of the house, you could emotionally and sometimes physically sense the change that was taking place in the homeowner's mind and heart and even physical appearance. They would mourn as as the Belongings and some of the things that had gotten rotten and had mildewed and stank has been 
carried out to the side of the road and as the walls were torn down. But as it began to get cleaned up, you would begin to hear them talk differently. You know, I never really liked the color in that room. I think we'll change it. You know, I never really liked that wall there. I think we'll move it. You know, I never really liked the, the color of the, of the tiles on our roof. I think we'll change it. You know, I think we ought to go from single beds for the kids to bunk beds. And they would suddenly begin to talk about what the future was going to hold. And renewing their homes and rebuilding their homes. One of the things you never heard, or at least I never heard, was, ah, let's just get rid of the whole thing. Just, just knock it all down. Kind of like the temple in Jerusalem. Don't let one stone stand upon another. You didn't hear that. The value of those homes, the, the value of the memories, the value of a family that lived within that dwelling gave a purpose and a value and a meaning to that structure. And over the course of six months, sometimes longer, the home would be renewed, rebuilt. And what was so interesting is it was the same home. Little girls, little boys would run in and they would see the house rebuilt for the first time and furniture back in and they'd run in to the place that was their room and you would hear them explain, my room, my room, my house. And even though there had been great devastation, even though the home had been destroyed by feet, of water. They still wanted their home. They wanted to renew it. They wanted to rebuild it because of how important and valuable it was to them. Do you know God feels the same way about his creation? God values his creation. Not just those that are made in God's image, us, people, he does value us. How much? This much. His son dying upon a cross to redeem us. But he also enjoys his creation. He values his creation. And the scripture tells us, in some ways like those families rebuilding their homes, God seeks to restore. God seeks to rebuild. God seeks to renew the very creation that he brought into existence. That he spoke into reality. When we think about eternity, again, we have this thought of this kind of ethereal place with no real material reality and kind of floating out in space. And biblically, that's just not what God's word teaches. We believe that way thanks to the, the, the writings of men like Descartes and, and the Gnostic beliefs that, that physical reality was somehow evil and only spiritual was good. That's not what God's word teaches in fact, as we've been going through this whole idea of what's next, what comes after this, what is eternity like, what is heaven like, 
We've been saying this, and hopefully in two more weeks after we finish this series, you'll have this idea that eternity is a resurrected life in a resurrected physical body with a resurrected Christ on a renewed or restored or recreated earth. Not spirits floating somewhere out there in sort of some ethereal existence. But real people in a real new creation. In a perfect relationship with God. You see, God's plan is to restore his creation. Not destroy it. I grew up with that sense of, you know... Why bother taking care of your house in the end it's going to be destroyed anyway? Why bother taking care of nature in the end it's going to be burned up anyway? Why bother doing this in the end it's going to be burned up anyway? And as I began to study this several years ago, I began to realize that's not what the scripture teaches. There's a very different attitude about God's creation than that sense of it's all going to burn up, why bother? In fact, what God longs to do is to restore his creation to its intended glory, even better than Eden, even better than at first. Now, in order to understand that, we need to understand that things got really messed up. In southern Louisiana, it was Hurricane Katrina. For creation, it was Hurricane Adam and Eve that came through and really messed things up. I mean royally. For as you read in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, what you understand is this is what creation was meant to be. We were created to live in a perfect world. That responded to us, that, that, that responded to our involvement with it, that was a joy and a wonder. There would be no such thing as wild animals and domestic animals. They would all respond. Wouldn't you love to pet a lion? Not right now. It was a perfect creation, a perfect world with a perfect body. Cindy and I did a lot of walking around yesterday doing shopping. And this morning we were both, oh, oh, ow. No longer a perfect, never was a perfect body, but that's what it was intended to be. With perfect relationships. Now, Cindy and I have a perfect relationship, but, yeah, right. But not only this relationship, but to walk in the garden in the very presence of God, to talk with a physical manifestation of God? Cool. And what did God say? This is very good. I like this. This is the way it's supposed to be. But then you've got to turn over to chapter 3. And when you come to chapter 3, you know, you've read the book or seen the movie. 
Eve partakes of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't an apple. Gives it to her husband. He eats. And everything gets messed up. Not just Adam and Eve. Not just their relationship. The fall changed everything. It changed the universe. It was cataclysmic. It changed our experience. We, we now experience sin that, that separates us from God. We now experience death that separates us from this body. Thankfully, because I get a new one. We experience futility in our lives. Nothing ever seems to go right. Have you ever noticed that? Go like this. We experienced being messed up. But it wasn't just us. It was all of creation. We're going to see in just a few moments, Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, creation was subjected, not by its own choice, but because those who were given the authority over it Sinned. The very creation itself was subject to futility. The scripture talks about that in, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. Whereas God is going through the curse and he begins with Satan and then he moves on to Eve and then he moves on to Adam and he says to Adam this, Cursed is The, anybody know the next word? Ground. The very earth. The very substance of creation is now cursed. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. Now, that's agricultural. We don't live, most of us, in an agricultural world. Let me do it a different way. When you go to swing the hammer at the nail, it's going to slip off sometimes and hit your thumb. When you go to fix the car, the bolt's going to be rusted. When you clean the house, especially if you have kids, it's just like it was Two hours later. If the market goes up, which actually terrifies me right now, the market will come down. The world is frustrating. God made it that way. He said, I want you to want for more. I want you to want for for what I expect what I wanted creation to be. But now it's subject to futility, to frustration. It fights against you. And in the end, you croak. You die. Okay, that's the bad news. But here's the good news. 
through Christ, all will be restored. All will be renewed. All will be revived. Not just us. Not just my immaterial part. Not just the, my spirit or whatever you want to call it. And there are a number of different ways that the scripture talks about that immaterial reality of who we are. Not just that. Not just the relationship. Yes, those are to be restored. But creation itself, what God said was so good and enjoyed and said, that's really cool. That's Keith's translation. It's to be restored and brought back. Scripture says it so often. Acts chapter 3, verse 21. Peter's, one of Peter's very first sermons. As he's talking about God's purpose. He doesn't say God's purpose is for you to die and to go in heaven and live as, you know, unbodied spirits in clouds with harps singing, whatever. He says he must remain. We live between the ascension and the return. He must remain in heaven between that period until the time comes for God to, what's the next word? Restore. And then also notice the next word. Everything. Not just my immaterial part. Not just my relationship with God. Are those things restored? Yes. But so is my body. And so is creation. Another passage, Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. He's talking to the disciples at that point. God's going to restore it all. Yes, Hurricane Adam and Eve might have come through and devastated things and destroyed things and corrupted things and made things futile. But God says, I will restore it. One of my favorite passages, I have a lot of them, but this is one of them. As Paul in Romans chapter 8 is talking about the power of the gospel, the power of God's spirit, and what he is involved in doing. And he says, I consider that our present suffering are not worthy to compare with the glory that will be revealed in us. And notice, he's talking about the believer, but then he goes to all things. He goes to creation. He says the creation waits in eager expectation. For the Son of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice. But by will of the one who subjected it. That is God. In hope. In confidence. In certainty. I heard someone this morning say about hoping about above hope. And that's kind of the earthly sense of hope. Oh, I hope so. That's not how the word is used in scripture. It's a sense of confidence, a sense of certainty, uncertainty and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay 
brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. You ever been out in the evening and watch the sunset? Suddenly there is an explosion of color. You just say, that is so gorgeous. God says, that kind of glory will not only exist now, but that kind of glory will exist when I renew everything. I wonder what the Grand Canyon will look like in the new heaven and new earth. I wonder what the stars will look like in the new heaven and new earth. God says, I seek to renew it. We feel comfortable in this home that God created and said was very good. And though it's been really messed up, there's a part of us that really enjoys living here. Because God said, this is what I created for you. You see, as you go through scripture, we find this. It's all about a new heaven and a new earth, refined for its intended splendor. God doesn't seek to annihilate creation. God doesn't seek to obliterate creation and then kind of start ex nihilo out of nothing. It's that God seeks to renew his creation for it to be a new heaven and a new earth with a new Jerusalem in the midst of it. Now, there are two passages I want you to keep your finger in. This one, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. And then turn over a few pages to Revelation chapter 21, the passage that, that Eric read. We're going to flip between those two. This is the theology. Revelation 21 is the prophecy. Here's the theology. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear. Not particularly a good translation. The heavens will be loosed with a roar. The elements will be loosed by fire. I know it says destroyed. And the earth and everything in it will be exposed. Laid bare. That day will bring about the loosing of the heavens by fire. And the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. But I thought God destroys it all, burns it all up. No, be careful how you read this. Because there's a couple of things we need to know about this passage. First of all, yes, the process is fire. But understand, it is in the context of the Genesis flood that you find in Genesis 6 and on. And it says in Genesis 6, and it says, it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, that God destroyed the world. Did he? Well, it depends what you mean by destroyed. Did he annihilate it so that there was nothing left? No. Did he obliterate it? No. He cleansed it cleaned it. He scrubbed it down like a pot in a, in a sink of soapy water. The idea of destroyed there is not obliterate, 
but it's like a refining fire that destroys the things that are not meant to be. And if you turn there to 2 Peter chapter 3, and you look at the verses, the whole context is found in verse 6. But these waters, also the world of that time, was deluged and destroyed. But it doesn't mean obliterated. It means cleansed. As you continue on in that passage, it, it's not only cleansed and annihilated, it says it's a new world. And the word new there doesn't mean, you know, obliterated in something totally unfamiliar, unconnected to that which existed before. The word for new does not mean replace or annihilate. It means to be renewed. It means to be changed. I can talk about getting new pants. And what I may mean by that is I got rid of the old ones. Probably Cindy threw them out. And I got totally different ones. That's one way we use the word new. But we can renew a house. We, we can renew a garden. We can, and it's not the idea that it's totally thrown away. But that we take what was there and we reshape it. We, we renew it. And that's the idea here. But not only that, it's called the earth. What is the earth? Do you know what that word means? Look around. The earth means the, the earth, the, the seas and the land and, the, and yes, the sunset and the mountains. And for those of us who are fishermen, the lakes and the, the streams. And we know what the word earth means. We know what the heavens are. God isn't saying I'm going to make something ethereal that's just kind of floating out there. I'm making a new heaven. And a new earth. But y'all know what it's like. It's a continuity. In some ways, the earth is the same. The heavens are the same, but yet remade. Renewed. And the whole idea is that it's new. It's similar. But, oh, it's so much greater. How do I know that? Well, now turn back to Revelation chapter 21. And there may be elements of Revelation 21 and 22 that are figurative. There may be elements of Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66 where it talks about the leopard lying down with the lamb and, and all of those kinds of things. But the language is language we're familiar with. It's still a lion. It's still a lamb. It's still a leopard. It's still a tree. It's still a city. But beyond anything we can imagine, and that's where you get into Revelation chapter 21 when it talks about, I didn't see any temple, but a city. Because the Lord God, the Lamb, are in its, are its temple and the city does not need a sun or a moon because there is a glory, a light that's even greater than those things. And the nations are there and there's streets to walk on and, there's, and they're, they're talked about with splendor and majesty and glory beyond anything we can completely imagine. But we can imagine it. 
It's not that it's gone, but that it's refined. And you read down through here, you see some things. Do you know what a city is? Do you know what's so interesting about scripture? It starts rural and ends urban. It starts in the garden and ends in a city. It's really interesting. There's a city. There are streets that we will walk on. There is a river that flows out of the city. And on each side of the river, there grows trees and plants that bring forth its fruits. This is the one, I remember this one getting me about 15 years ago. There are nations. I think there's going to be races and nationalities and uniquenesses. There'll be unique expressions of what it means to be God's creation. And the kings bring what is the splendor and the glory of their nations before God in worship. There is government. There is culture. I think there are some cultures that are going to have cooler robes in heaven than others. There's culture. There's music. There's technology. Somehow we think of heaven as going back to Eden and running around. I don't know. Leave it at that. But God talks about a new heaven, a new earth. With, Can you imagine what it would be like to be creative and inventive without sin? Without the curse? With all of the splendor of a new creation and a new heaven and a new earth and a new mind and a new body? To accomplish what God would allow us to accomplish. Yes, there are animals. Now, I'm not one who gets real attached to my pets. It's a dog. I'm sorry. I know they love you. Mine just likes me because I give it food. Actually, Cindy does. But there is that sense of connection. In fact, it's an interesting passage. Psalm 104.30 talks about the fact that when it comes to animals, that, that God takes their breath away. They die. They go back to, to, to earth. But then it goes on to say that there's a day of glory coming when, when God will bring them back. It's part of a new creation. Isaiah talks about it, how much of it is millennial, how much of it is eternal, of, of the lions and the leopards and the lambs and the, the vipers and all the rest of those things. And I think in Isaiah, there's sort of a mixing sometimes of the, the two periods of, of God's future, millennial and eternal. But those things will exist. Wonder what a heavenly pet is like. Bet they never pee on the floor. The fact is, there's familiarity and continuity. Yet without the effects of the curse. One of our, all of us, we love joy to the world. One of the lines is there, it talks about God's redeeming. Far as the curse is found. 
it's removed. I love the books, the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've never read them, read them. They're wonderful. And like all of you, I like the Voyage of the Dawn Treader the most. That's usually the one that everyone chooses. But the real key is, what's the second one you like? My second favorite, really close to my first, is The Last Battle. When Aslan, who is the representation of Jesus, who is God, decides to remake the earth, remake Narnia. And let me read what C.S. Lewis writes. And the reason why I love The Last Battle so much Because to me, it's the most theologically phenomenal of all the books. They've entered into eternity. And the kings and queens and some of the earlier characters begin to talk among themselves. And Edmund says, if you ask me, it's like somewhere in the Narnian world as they're moving into eternity. Look at those mountains ahead and the the big ice mountain beyond them. Surely they're rather like the mountains we used to see from Narnia. The ones up westward beyond the waterfall. Yes, so they are, said Peter. Only these are bigger. I don't think those ones are so very like anything in Narnia, said Lucy. But look there, pointing southward to their left. And everyone stopped and turned to look. Those hills. The nice woody ones and the blue ones behind. Aren't they very like the southern borders of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund, after a moment of silence. Why, they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with its forked head. And there's the pass into Arkenland and everything. And yet they're, they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more color in them. And they look further away than I remembered. And they're, 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 they're more. Oh, I don't know. They're more. More like the real thing, said Lord Diggory. Suddenly, Farsight the eagle spread his wings and soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled around, and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I have seen it all. Edensmere and Beaver Dam, the great river and Care Paravel, still shining on the edge of the eastern sea. Narnia's not dead This is Narnia. Remade. Recreated. In all of its splendor. But how can it be, said Peter, for Aslan told us older ones that we should never return to Narnia. And here we are. The eagle is right, said Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that is not the real Narnia. This isn't the real creation. This is just a shadow. This is just a a glimpse of what God has planned. That's my comment. That's not in here. It's not the Narnia you're thinking of. 
But that was not the real Narnia. That had, that had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia. And of course it is different. As different as a real thing is from a shadow or a waking life is from a dream. And then here's my favorite part. It was the unicorn who summed it up. What everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and he neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this one. And then my favorite phrase in that last book, come further up and further in. There's even more. That's what God promises. God says, I'm going to take the things you love on the earth and in and, and its shadowy nature, in its, in its uh, not quite full nature. And I'm going to make it beyond what at this point you can imagine. You can imagine. But it's so much more. Beloved, that kind of heaven, I want to go to. I don't want to sit on a cloud with a harp and sing choruses and hymns the rest of my eternal existence. But this heaven... And as I begin to think through it, just a couple of thoughts real quick about what it all means in terms of our lives. First of all, God's attitude towards his physical creation is evident in his desire to restore it, not annihilate it. God loves the beauty of his creation. God loves the splendor of his creation. Not love in a relational sense, but in the sense that he values it. He he appreciates it. He enjoys it. God doesn't want Satan to win. If you have this ethereal eternity, Satan wins. He destroyed what God meant to do. God says, not at all. Watch what I'm going to make out of what you thought you destroyed. But also, there's another attitude. If the aim of God's kingdom is restoration... We, as representatives of that kingdom, we are to begin that work now. We know that people are eternal. And so what do we seek to do? We seek to redeem them. We seek to renew them. We seek to restore them to the wonder and majesty of what God meant them to be. We share the gospel. We, we, we disciple people so that we as his representatives can represent his kingdom now as he moves it to what it will be and comes about when he returns. We do that in relationships God says we know that relationships will exist eternally. And so we are motivated to work them, to, to help them become all that they are meant to be. 
Cindy and I will have been married 40 years this summer. That's a long time. It's been wonderful. But there were times it wasn't. On our wedding rings, we have engraved Malachi 3.16. Do you know the verse? Thus saith the Lord, I hate divorce. I love Cindy, but I was stuck with her. And she was, this is even worse, stuck with me. We had to work it out. That's our attitude towards relationships. You're going to see that person for eternity. Start working on the relationship now. But it's also true of creation. We need to value what God values. Creation will be eternal, not as we know it now, but in that renewed way. And just as we seek to restore it, and God seeks to restore it in his kingdom, we're representatives of his kingdom. Where should we start doing that now? Now, does it mean that we have to, you know, go back to nature and live like Adam and Eve? No, we're not allowed to. You'll figure that out. But what it does mean is that we give value to that creation. We don't abuse it. We don't misuse it. Yes, Christians are called to be ecologists. Now, whether you not believe in global warming or not, or whether you believe in, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's something we can talk about. But in valuing that creation, God calls us to it. And then finally this. The present futility of creation arouses our desire for more than this present world can offer. I always want more. and That's not wrong. I just need to make sure that I place that desire for more in the right place. And that's in that new creation, that new body, that new relationship that will last for eternity. I want more. And somehow we've come to believe that wanting less is Christian. It's the opposite. God has put into our hearts a longing for eternity. And when we look and see and say, I wish there was more, you know what God's response is? There is. Be faithful to me. Trust in me. Believe in me. And I will give you the more. It begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ that establishes our eternity. And from then on it grows and develops. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what we find in Scripture, what we find about eternity. May we be those that, yes, live in the midst of now, but understand that the now at times just arouses our hunger for more, for more of you, for more interaction and and relationship with one another, and, Father, more of the beauty that surrounds us. If there's someone here that isn't certain that that eternity is theirs, we invite them to come and speak to me or someone else that they might be certain of that in their lives. And, Father, those of us who have that relationship, Remind us to be your kingdom people beginning now 
with the knowledge of the hope that is ours for all of eternity. And we pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus, who makes it all possible. Amen.